Okay, so about five years ago, I was at a production in York. It was an open-air theatre production called Blood and Chocolate. It was a collaboration between Slung Low Pilot and York Theatre Royal Theatre Companies. And it was about uh, the First World War. It, was, it focused on the men from the Roundtree's Chocolate Factory in York who'd gone off to fight in the conflict and the women who'd stayed behind and had taken their places. And um, we kind of processed through the streets. We were wearing uh, bucket headphones. There were vignettes played around us. And the, the, the piece began very upbeat, kind of full of pomp and circumstance. And there were films projected onto walls of people saying goodbye to their sweethearts. And there was a brass band and so on. As we went on, the mood became more and more disorganized. And by the time we got to uh, the main thoroughfare in York, it was one of essentially barely um, concealed terror. There were cannons being wheeled around, there was um, puffs of smoke going off left, right and centre and at some point we walked down the street, we were um, directed by ushers to stop, in front of us there was a trailer unmarked and abruptly the side of the trailer fell away. Uh, within the trailer there was a replica trench which was strewn with bodies of dead and dying soldiers being tended to by nurses and one of the nurses looked up at us, the audience, and she spoke directly into her lapel mic, and it was conveyed into the bucket headphones that we wore, and she said, ladies and gentlemen, you don't belong here. And that moment, that phrase, um, took on a profound significance for me. The, um, the way in which we had been brought to a sense of history and then reminded in no uncertain terms, that this was not our place, was something that I'd wanted articulated for a very long time. And, I, and when I was studying history as a child, um, the First World War, for whatever reason, has always felt particularly difficult. It's always felt like it's very, very alien and also very, very close. On the one hand, it's something that I don't understand how that many people could have been involved in such a ridiculous conflict, how they could have sacrificed their lives for an idea of the monarchy and for the country. That's not the world that I live in and it's not the beliefs that I hold. Nevertheless, of course, it, it happened. Um, but on the other hand, it's something that is constantly brought back into um, public perspective um, because we have the, the rituals every year, the Remembrance Day rituals in which things like the wearing of poppies and the, the silences are designed to remind us of the First World War, but in a way that I always felt was not really engaging with conflict. It was just like, you know, going through the motions and swearing allegiance to something. Um, and this, I've had this kind of anger about that particular conflict since I can remember. Um, when I was at school, I, I would be required with my classmates to stand in solemn observation of something that was completely beyond my ken, beyond their ken, beyond any of the teachers' kens. And so when I saw this show, um, it was like somebody had finally given voice to a problem that I'd been grappling with for a very long time, and I think at its best theatre can do that. Um, and I want to, to sort of frame this episode, I'm going to talk about three shows, with that idea of you don't belong here, of not belonging. Because as spectators, we assume a kind of right, as theatre spectators, we assume a kind of right. We assume that we um, have the right to be entertained, that we have the right to be well-treated, that there is some sort of uh, obligation that the performers have to us. And we understand this, broadly speaking, under the auspices of capitalism. You know, I, I pay my money for a ticket, and thus I have a right to be here uh, to get a return for my investment and to be entertained. Um, you know, different shows have different kinds of rights. If I'm going to a stand-up comedy, then I may generally assume the right to consume alcohol, should I wish. I also... Uh, 
assume that I may have the right to be addressed by the comic, and if it's a small enough venue and I feel brave enough, I may assume a certain right to heckle, a right that I would not assert, I assume, if I went to see a production of something like Hamlet um, at the Royal Shakespeare Company or, you know, The Lion King on, on the West End. Um, and it's worth noting, actually, that theatre audiences, that we kind of, we, we absorb this, this right implicitly, and actually when they are... Um, broken or contravened or we feel that I'm not being lived up to. This is often when, when um, audiences react violently. Um, there was a, a very famous production of a play called Ubu Hua, or Ubu the King, that happened in 1897 in Paris, I think it was 1897, Alfred Jerry, um, where the audience rioted. And unlike the kind of received wisdom, um, the general idea is that they rioted because the first word of the play was merdre, which is a kind of form of shit, usually translated as shitters or shitsky. Um, and that the audience had never heard this in a mainstream theatre before. Actually, the thing, the reason that they rioted was because there's a scene in the play where um, somebody goes to visit somebody else in prison and they didn't have enough money for a door to be brought on stage, so they just had uh, an actor standing there with their arm out in front of them that could be pushed backwards and forwards, which is a standard convention of theatre now, but at that point it was so kind of different to what an audience conceived of as the right that they had to be entertained in a particular way that apparently they went crazy. Anyway, as I said, I want to talk about um, the unsettling of the spectator, the, the, the spectator being made to feel somehow that they don't belong in a place. Um, and I'm going to talk about this in conjunction with three plays that are currently at the Edinburgh Fringe, um, all of which have problematised in different ways at the idea of a right to belong. The plays are Chris Thorpe's Status, which is playing at Summerhall, uh, this Egg Theatre Company's production of Dressed, which is at the Underbelly, and Dante or Die's collaboration with the playwright Chris, well, the theatre maker Chris Good, um, a production called User Not Found that's being staged at the Geely Peely Cafe on uh, Lothian Road in conjunction with the Travers Theatre. So, welcome to Stage Brother. That was a very long introduction. A podcast exploring theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddo, and you're listening to episode 25, I Don't Belong Here. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote? You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar I'm not going to talk about Chris Thorpe's show um, very much, status. Um, but I do want to mention it a little. It's a fictionalised and a kind of magical realist play of sorts with songs that is based on the author's cultural whiplash in the aftermath of the Brexit vote. We meet him first on the, the roof of the building in which he lives where he's looking around at the London skyline and uh, despairing of the country that he thought he felt at home in and suddenly no longer able to stay there. He feels a, a compulsion to leave, and not just to leave, but to kind of rid himself of any national identity. And he travels to um, he, the um, the desert in the United States, and he has a series of improbable or impossible encounters with, amongst others, a, a coyote who was once a schoolgirl in East Germany and a holographic reincarnation of a refugee who died on their way to presumed sanctuary. Now, Thorpe is painfully aware of the, both the cliché of his situation, you know, this privileged white man having some kind of a cultural breakdown, and at the same time, um, he's aware of the privileged nature of his quest, and he delivers the show in a very kind of ironic way, which is, it seems, designed to speak to an equivalent kind of awkwardness that he assumes is felt by the well-heeled audiences at this summer hall venue. And I think that that is one of the most successful um, elements of the show, is that it takes the kind of uh, queasiness and uh, discontent that is felt by uh, people in a, an otherwise uh, presumably stable political situation and kind of 
presents it back to us in a way that is, is both familiar and um, kind of nauseating at the same time. Um, I, it, I should be said that I've, I've tried to avoid Brexit shows at this fringe because it seems that a kind of... Well, it seems a fairly saturated subject. It's, there's very little um, in the way of overly right-wing political theatre, generally speaking, in Britain, and so um, particularly at the fringe, and so it can be quite difficult to locate theatre that trades in political subjects which doesn't simply parrot your own views back at you if you're left-wing like I am. Um, and I didn't actually realise that this was a Brexit show. He assures the audience at the beginning that it isn't, but I think that the spectre of Brexit does kind of loom large over everything that he does. Um, although, so what I think was salient about it, I mean, it, it is a very well-produced piece of work. The songs are, um, I, I think, actually worked quite well into the fabric of, of the piece, and the the narrative is kind of suitably strange that it, it um, takes what could otherwise be quite a, a tired subject, I think tired for most of us by now, and, and gives some kind of um, grandeur or epic scale or something. Um, there's also a kind of a, a period of time where he, if the interacts with a Native American and um, talks about the ways in which the um, indigenous cultures in the United States are overwritten by um, white people, which also kind of feeds back into the, this kind of strange relationship he has with, with his own national identity and his own national heritage. Um, and I, so I quite like the idea that it tried to fashion something remarkable out of this everyday sense of dislocation. Um, and... I suppose ultimately there was this quite um, awkward presumption that he was trading on, which is that this is not the kind of thing that happens to people like us. You know, Britain has enjoyed a, an unprecedented period of stability in the last few decades, and whilst the rest of the world may recognise political instability as the norm for the British, it's something that uh, took us by, it seemed, well, I say us, uh, I have to be careful about who I'm presuming to speak for. It took me, and it took people who shared political beliefs similar to mine, um, quite by surprise. What what he didn't do, what Thorpe didn't do, um, which beyond disrupting a few conventions about the ways in which autobiographical performances generally delivered, and you know he was singing, and a person behind me was particularly disdainful about the the songs that he was singing. He didn't really challenge our position in tandem with his own. He made of himself a spectacle, and I think we were left to reflect personally on our own awkward out-of-placeness, but to me that kind of let the audience off the hook a little bit too much. Um, now, a show which was much less easygoing was Dressed. And Dressed is a devised piece by this egg theatre company, centering on the experiences of one of the performers, Lydia, who was attacked and forced to strip at gunpoint. As, a, as a, a teenager, years later she enlists the help of three other performers and in a kind of series of metatheatrical asides we are informed that these performers are school friends of hers and that they have worked together to produce this show to bring to the fringe to engage with these experiences. Now it's quite tricky talking about this show on this podcast for two principal reasons. Now, the first reason, quite simply, is that they explicitly reference reviews within the show itself, and they talk about how much they dislike them, even the positive ones. And uh, actually, for what it's worth, I pretty much entirely agree with what they were saying, even though dis you know, I appear to be in the occasional business of offering theatre reviews, because they point out that their show has been bodlerized into one of 56 shows that, at the Fringe this summer that orbit the Me Too movement. And in a rather arch fashion, they quote a range of daft things that reviewers have said about their work. You know, it's uplifting, it's uh, uh, tear-jerking, um, speaking as a man or speaking as a man with a daughter. And, uh, and you know, I entirely uh, agree with, with their um, 
dismissal of reviewers, and I would expect if any of them do listen to this, that they probably would be equally dismissive. Nevertheless, I think it is important to talk about it uh, for the second reason that I find this difficult, um, which is to do with my gender. Now, there's a section of the show where one of the performers does a deliberately bad stand-up routine, complete with, you know, over-the-top mugging and nudge-nudge, wink-wink unfunniness. And then she thanks the men in the audience who must have seen the poster and thought, that show's for me. And, she, and then she says, it isn't. And then she says, although we couldn't have made the show without you. And at that point, I am, I think by design, squirming. And I'm remembering the beginning of the show, where each performer kind of out of character doing warm-ups and um, jumping around very enthusiastically. Each of them makes eye contact with a variety of spectators, including me. Um, and and I think about this eye contact, about the way in which they would made eye contact with me in a way that was, was, you know, I think probably quite deliberately combative. And certainly once the performer has then done this bad stand-up routine where she said, we couldn't have made this show without men, I find it much more difficult to make eye contact with the performers. Um... And what they're doing, I think, by by um, having this effect on me is reclaiming the theatre space, politically reclaiming the theatre space. And when at the point at which they start politically reclaiming the theatre space, um, I realise that I haven't been thinking sufficiently about the various privileges that I'm granted by dint of the gender with which I identify in terms of things of being able to look wherever I want to. Now, I, I was once talking to a woman friend uh, about eye contact in nightclubs. She brought this up with me. She said that she, um, and I, I gather subsequently that this is standard practice for many women, if not all, that when she's in nightclubs, she often walks around with her eyes lowered because if she makes eye contact with a man, then there is often some kind of, if not always, some kind of tacit understanding of uh, a kind of invitation, which then legitimizes this person coming over to talk to her. And there are various connotations connected to that, um, some of them often unwanted. Now, I don't have to do that. I am lucky. I am a man. I identify as a man. There are no blanket restrictions on where I can look, no automatic presumptions over my compliance if I happen to meet somebody's eye in a public space like a nightclub. It's a simple point. It's an overly, ridiculously simple point, but I think that it's worth making, and I'll come back to that in a second, because... Obviously what this is doing is inhibiting the use of public spaces that are designed explicitly for recreation for half of the population. And at this point, I can imagine any woman listening to this episode is probably getting massively exasperated at my idiocy and saying, well, of course, what on earth do you think was going on? But that's the point. I think that is worth making, That and one of the positive outcomes of the Me Too movement is kicking men like me out of the mistaken presumption that things like the spaces that I don't have to be on my guard in are safe for everybody, because, of course, they're not. I remember um, very clearly that you know, the the, the day of, of the, the Me Too, the, the the first kind of wave of Me Too uh, tags on, on Facebook and on Twitter, and the the hideous inevitability that accompanied that um, initial outpouring uh, from women friends, the resultant messages from male friends which expressed a kind of futile horror, and then the consequent exasperation from women going, yes, of course all women have suffered this, what did you think had been going on? And what I liked, what I really, really liked about Dressed is that it seemed to be converting, and I think successfully converting, that reclamation of online space and visibility of people going, actually, this is what's been going on all the time. This is the world that we're all living in. Many of us, by dint of um, their gender, don't have to worry about this and have turned a blind eye to things that are otherwise extremely iniquitous and affect people very negatively. So 
it, I suppose you know to say it was a wake-up call was a massive understatement, but it was certainly a necessary um, expression, long overdue. Um, should never have had to happen because the situation should never have arisen, but it did, and so therefore this reclamation of online space became um, one of the, the, the kind of, I think, most positive um, phenomena in the last year, certainly in terms of you know uh, being in Britain. And um, and what, what they were doing in dress, I think, was trying to bring that reclamation of online space into a theatre space. And I should say also that this is, I think, dress is extraordinary theatre. The four performers um, are extremely accomplished in a variety of, of um, genres. There's physical theatre, dance, singing, comedy, and costuming, uh, because part of the show actually involves the on-stage construction of costumes. Lydia, the central character, uh, makes all of her own clothes herself. As a kind of, as a, it's kind of implied that this is like a um, uh, some form of resistance or defiance or rebellion or self-authorship or something. She doesn't necessarily want to define it, and that seems absolutely um, in, entirely understandable, but it's something she says, it's, it's important to me to make my own clothes, and so she makes her own clothes on stage. Um, and what could have been a very inward-looking piece of autobiographical drama, I don't want to say worthy or, or you know, um, what's the phrase that they use in the show, self-congratulatory, um, because I don't think that's what was going on. I think it was something quite spectacular. But one of the spectacular things about it was that it, it was happening on the performer's own terms. And this question of eye contact and of gaze was something that was very carefully undermined. There was also um, uh, naked bodies. There was a, a kind of a very careful framing of naked bodies at the beginning of the show that the performers are all dressed. They do change their clothes, but the lights go off and they mask each other whilst they're doing it. As the show goes on and more of the information about Lydia's experiences come out, then at various points performers do um, take many of their clothes off, but it's a, in such a done in such a, a way that I think that there is no kind of erotics to it. It's um, it's something that becomes extremely difficult to engage with, as it should be. Um, and as you know, having been a, a spectator of theatre shows for quite a long time now, I I actually sat in this show finding my position as a spectator rendered extremely suspect, and I was forced to reflect on the privilege that I have of not needing to be concerned about where I look or how I compose myself to a degree um, in life transferred into the theatre, into a space that I ordinarily find um, that I don't need to, in which I don't need to question my position. Now there's lots of other things I want to talk about with this show um, and they may make their way into subsequent episodes. In a show as deeply personal as this, for example, there's always going to be a troubling line between performance and experience, which is something that I actually see more often in student drama than I do in professional theatre, because often students will draw, at least in my experience, will often draw upon personal experiences to make their theatre in ways that a lot of the professional theatre I see doesn't. Uh, I, I should say also, I tend to steer away from autobiographical drama in professional theatre because I've seen quite a lot of it that's quite bad. Um, this has, I think, changed my perspective to a degree about what you can do in autobiographical theatre. Um, one and there was points at which I, I honestly wished that they would stop, um, and because the action, that, the onstage action, seemed to be genuinely affecting Lydia to a degree that was kind of uh, troubling. She was the show doesn't pull any punches, um, and in, there's one sequence in which one of them openly confronts Lydia about the material that they're producing being too much, that Lydia's need to express her response to the violence that was done to her is compromising the drama. Um, and is forcing all the other performers into really uncomfortable positions, and Lydia bursts into tears. And it, it was kind of one of those moments where you just really wanted to stop, to, but of course, you know, it's their show, and this, they're doing it on their terms, and that's part of the point. You don't get to say stop. You don't get to close your ears or your eyes. This is presented to you in a way that is very, very insistent. 
Um, and it, there's a, a phrase of Howard Barker's that um, came back as well. I was watching it, which is he said that the audience should be privileged to witness the work of art, which is a very unconventional and in many ways unfashionable thing to say in British theatre, where the spectator is often pandered to. I don't think that uh, that this like we're pandering to the spectator. I think that what actually was happening was that they were constructing a work of art, which it was our privilege to witness. And I did feel enormously privileged at the same time as feeling enormously um, upset by what they were doing or what they were referring to. Um, I'm also fascinated by the way in which the show uses costume. Um, now, a theatre costume is by its nature a token of artificiality, right? It's designed to augment and energise a fiction. But in this show, the costumes become a kind of extension of liberty, apparently an expression of defiance against the people who have harmed Lydia, and that does then balloon out. They don't just stick with the one... Um, just they don't stick with the one example of violence that was done to Lydia. They also make explicit references to, amongst other people, um, Harvey Weinstein, kind of uh, visual references. Um, and as I was watching that, I started thinking about the people that I knew who have an interesting costume, and that I would recommend this show to them. And I, by the end of the the show, I'd kind of resolved to make this a universal recommendation. And I try not to do that too often on stage, brother. But I, if anyone's listening to this and does have the chance to go and see Dressed at Underbelly. I think that this is brilliant theatre. I think it, it is something that has done what theatre can do sometimes, which is shift the way that I th think about certain things, and I'm still kind of processing how that works. Um, now, finally, I want to talk a little bit about a play called User Not Found, which is Chris Good's collaboration with Dante or Die, and it's staged in the GDP's cafe, an actual cafe on Lothian Road, uh, in conjunction with the Traverse Theatre Company. It's a show with one performer, Terry, who is also a founding member of the company, Dante O'Dai, and he performs for the audience, kind of within the cafe, and the audience are all seated at tables, and each of us has been given a pair of headphones and a smartphone. Much of the drama unfolds through these devices. Uh, we get kind of a rolling um, sort of interact well, not interactively, because we don't engage with it, but Terry plays with his phone, and we see what's happening on his phone on our phone. So we see uh, Facebook feeds and Twitter feeds and so on. Um, we learn fairly early on that Terry's boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, has died, and he's made Terry the executive for this person's online footprint. And Terry is faced with a dilemma, which fuels the, the most of the drama of whether or not to delete his ex-boyfriend's online presence. It's a very well-observed show, and I think in some ways it's too observed, too well-observed, um, because it may be very, very, very angry. Uh, not, I think, through its own fault, but because it probably skewered a set of issues to do with grief in the modern world, um, or specifically the ways that grief is rerouted and corrupted through technology in a way that I found far too close for comfort. Um, I'll try not to let my anger uh, <laughs> impact upon the way in which I talk about this show, but it, it is something um, much, I suppose, as with um, the example from York that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, that it did touch very a nerve for me. Now, the first thing to say is that as the show goes on, it becomes kind of tacitly accepted that an online portfolio is somehow a representation of a life. Um, rather than a carefully curated performance that it is, is designed to present a version of life to the viewing public. Terry is looking through his um, ex-boyfriend's uh, Facebook and Twitter feeds with what amounts to increasing obsessiveness, scanning um, these documents for evidence of the relationship that they had and significant moments in that relationship, the first time they slept together and so on. And he becomes distraught when he can't find any, because, of course, the ex-boyfriend hasn't been recording their relationship on Facebook and Twitter. He's been living it. The things that he records on Facebook and Twitter are different. They are narratives that he constructs for his own amusement and for the presumed amusement of his online friends. Um, but Terry becomes unable to separate these two things. And at this point, I started thinking about Derrida because, you know, that's the kind of geeky thing that apparently I do. So I started thinking about Jacques Derrida.
who has uh, a, what he calls a notion of the trace. Now, I talked about Derrida and his writings on grief and mourning uh, in this podcast before, in the episode on a monster call. So if you're interested, go back and listen to that by all means. Um, but I didn't discuss the trace, and I'll try and do that briefly now. Every relationship is built upon shared experiences, and let's, for argument's sake, stick with kind of relationships that just involve two people. So there are shared experiences that create a kind of collective identity uh, in which the two people involved recognize a kind of private world. You know, you have this um, set of experiences with another person, and that provides you with a uh, shared history and also a kind of shared language and frame of reference that, through which you express your love for each other. Now, at some level, we are aware that the, the actual memories that we have of these experiences are just a fraction of the experiences themselves. But we also trick ourselves into believing that any experience we have had with this friend is capable of being brought back into the present via an act of memory, because the other person is always there, and they can potentially remind us. And sometimes they do, you know, I'm sure everyone listening to this has had a friend remind them of some kind of shared experience that they'd forgotten, and often that's a very pleasurable thing. Sometimes it's not so much, but, um, you know, let's stick with the, with, the, with the positive things. But if that person dies, then we lose them, but we lose not just them. We also lose the capacity that they represent of bringing these forgotten memories into being. And so Derrida says that we lose them twice. We lose the person and the trace, and the trace is defined here as the aspect of the relationship that we know exists but has always been inaccessible. It's there, we know it happened, but we also know, implicitly usually, that it is um, irrecoverable. So that's a very kind of truncated um, explanation of what Derrida means by trace, I think. And it's worth bearing in mind that Derrida uses this idea to apply to a variety of phenomena and texts, that not just grief and mourning. But I found the idea of the trace very powerful in the you know, context of grief, because it represents a space that because of its inaccessibility, is also inviolable. You know, nobody else can touch it. I can't even touch it. And so it is sacred. The problem is, if you start measuring a friendship based on recordable objects, such as the images and tweets, uh, you know, texts that make up a Twitter feed or a Facebook account, then you eradicate the trace and you manifest the entire friendship in public, or at least you try to. You maintain the fiction that you can somehow... Um, document everything and that these are the important salient details and if you do that you bring it into a place that is no longer private and thus is no longer sacred it is viable corruptible and i realized after my my granny died i actually at some level i seem to have understood this um years ago because for a long time i was very reluctant to share my memories of her i had this kind of sense that if i did it would somehow violate or corrupt their significance to me now i recognize that what i was doing was trying to keep hold of her memory and um, so on. But at the, at the time, that was very, very significant. So this is where I start thinking about not belonging in a space, with reference to, to user not found. The production plays with the idea of not belonging in space on many levels. So initially, we go in and we're people in a cafe. We, it's a functioning cafe. We can sit and we can buy coffee and we can chat to each other. And then the cafe becomes recast as the space of Terry's world. So when we put our headphones on, Terry starts talking. All of a sudden, it's his cafe, not us. It's a cafe, but it's one that exists only for him. And he looks at us and he actually casts us in it. He casts me as a guy called Giancarlo, apparently a pansexual flirt with bare arms who never has to pay for a shot of syrup. Um, then as the, the narrative progresses, it becomes the space of his grief and it becomes private space, although it is in public, and we witness a lot of kind of um, outpourings of emotion from him. And finally, the phones that we hold in our hands or put on the table in front of us 
These traverse the space of his former lover's social media profiles, as well as his own and various apps that he uses. So in some ways we are also traversing on uh, an online space that is not ours to traverse upon. And through all of this, I felt a real profound discomfort. To me, grief is something that overwhelms conveyance, and it has to. Bernard Stiegler uh, is fond of quoting the French poet Paul Valéry when he says that there should be a number in poetry that prevents counting. I'm paraphrasing, but I think the point of that is, or that I take from that, is that there are experiences that do and that must be beyond the grasp of communication. Because otherwise they're not sacred. User not found, I think, spent most of its time in a place in which everything could be communicated or was presumed to be communicable and quantified and quantifiable and it, it and you know dealt with by impersonal algorithms. He receives an automated message from uh, a company that is designed to help ease the passing of a person by offering the executor the chance to delete their digital footprint. Like this is something that has a program that's been written for it. And humans I don't think should be um uh we shouldn't be able to be understood entirely in our complexity by programming language. This is possibly my Luddite tendencies, but I do maintain this quite ferociously. Ferociously, as if I'm going to go into battle over it. Well, whatever. I think it's a fierce old belief, I think. Um, and there was a really distressing moment in this, and we were kind of, you know, we, we were looking at this through phones so much, and then there's one point at which they, he has a, a real outpouring of, of emotion, and it's very loud, and I realised that everybody apart from me was sitting there with their headphones on, listening to Nora Jones. Which is, I think, why I found... I don't think it's a criticism of the show. I think it's a very good show, I think it, but I think it's a very troubling show and for reasons that are still kind of upsetting me. Right, I'm going to stop at that. Thank you for listening. I hope this has been in some way useful to you, and I'll try and get more episodes out as The Fringe goes on. The title song, by the way, is One More Book Poet by Polly Edwards, and if anybody listening to this is in, Edi is in Edinburgh, then she runs the Greenwood Bakery on Gilmore Place. Please go. It's bloody lovely. Get a croissant. She's an excellent human being and very good company. Um, otherwise, have good days all, and I'll try and get one out soon. Cheers. Bye. So fly when you're back and go dream of the seas. Find out you're not quite that easy to please. Be slave to the tracks. Be king for a day. Do you realize things do have a price they can't pay?